This is Smart Women, Smart Power, a podcast that features conversations with some of the world's most powerful women. You know, so arms control, reducing arms, predictability, transparency are all things that we're pursuing and we're pursuing them in different ways with different countries. We feature thought leaders at all career levels, where we explore, among other things, the many contributions that women make to the fields of international business, national security, foreign policy, and international development. Does having women in positions of power influence the outcomes of decisions in these fields? Why or why not? Join me, Dr. Kathleen McInnes, director of the Smart Women Smart Power Initiative at the Center for Strategic and International Studies for these incredible conversations. I am so honored to have Ambassador Bonnie Jenkins, Undersecretary for Arms Control and International Security on Smart Women Smart Power today. We are podcasting from the Halifax International Security Forum. Ambassador Jenkins previously served in the Obama administration as Special Envoy and Coordinator for Threat Reduction Programs in the Bureau of International Security and Nonproliferation. She's also the founder of Women of Color Advancing Peace and Security. We could frankly like go on for hours listing all the incredible accomplishments and pathbreaking work that you have done in the field of international security. I'm going to stop there. Welcome, Ambassador Thank Jenkins. You. Thank <laughs> you. It's my honor to be here in, in this, uh, this great event here in Halifax. I was at the Halifax conference in 2017, mm -hmm. and I could see how it's grown and changed. There's a lot more Americans here, senators here, and the vibe is great, and people yeah. want to talk, and I guess they didn't have it in person for a couple of years for obvious reasons. Yeah. I'm not sure last year what they did, but it's, it's just nice to be here. So thank you for inviting me to be here on the podcast. To start off, I'd love to hear your your story. Like, What brought you into this world of international security and arms control and, mm -hmm. you know, threat reduction, which is quite the niche within this yes. weird world of international security. Yes. And, you know, I look back to the beginning of how I got here because I certainly growing up in the South Bronx didn't think about international security issues. I was yeah. more focused on New York City and New York State and domestic issues. But I always had a passion for public service. Yeah. You know, so I always knew I was going to work in government. And so that kind of put me in a path already. And then I also joined the Air Force Reserves. And so that got me to think more in a military mindset. Mm -hmm. The reserves I started when I was in law school. Oh, okay. And then I was able to get the pre something called the Presidential Management Fellowship, mm -hmm. which put me in Washington, D.C., which is where I always wanted to be. Okay. I mean, I started doing New York City politics. I worked at New York City government, and I went up to state Albany so I can get to do New York State government. Eventually wanted to come to federal government, so I okay. kind of wanted to get that experience. Yeah. And so my fellowship was at the Department of Defense. Once I got the fellowship... And I had my law degree and a master's. And so I started working at the international law office at the Pentagon. And it was while I was in that office as an intern that I got exposed to the issues of strategic arms. Right. And I fell in love with it. I said, yeah. this is great. Just like a wake up call. I hadn't mm -hmm. thought about it. I knew I was doing international. I didn't know which area of international I wanted to focus on. And even that was an anomaly. Everyone in my law school, they went to work in law firms. Mm -hmm. Very few did public service. Right. And much less that kind of work. So it was really an anomaly for me. And they didn't do international law. So it was all new. And I fell in love with the first meeting I went to. And I said, okay, this is what I want to do. But I want to be overseas with the U.S. delegations that were negotiating treaties. Okay. And this was in the 90s where we actually did a lot of that. And so I went to an agency called the Arms Control Disarmament Agency, which mm -hmm. doesn't exist anymore. It was set up by President Kennedy. It was folded into state in like 1998. But I went there. 
And that was the start of it. I literally started there as an intern or fellow. And then like the next day or two days later, they shipped me off to Vienna. <laughs> <'Cause> <laughs> they were drinking from the fire hose, I know, right? I know. <laughs> so they were finishing up something called the Conventional Forces in Europe Treaty. And mm-hmm. it was like the last few, the last couple of months of that. And then I was with the other two lawyers from my office who were the lawyers for the ambassador and the delegation. That's where we started it. And I've been doing it ever since. Yeah. So what was it like entering this field? Because these negotiations are so technical. The language that is used is so critically important. Like your first role in the federal government. So how how are you experiencing that? You know, I think having been in it, because by this time I was already, I was in the military as a reservist. The military lingo, I may not have known all the details, but I felt comfortable. Yeah. Being in a treaty negotiation on conventional forces and equipment and tanks and all Mm -hmm. the airplanes Mm -hmm. and troops, the concepts, the ideas were not foreign. And I was coming in as a lawyer, the lawyer for delegation. So Mm -hmm. I knew my area and I may not have known all the technical stuff, but we had people there who who know that. Right, right, right. And, And in that treaty, for example, you had the army folks who know that. Nuclear treaties and the issues, you have nuclear physicists if you need it, nuclear engineers if you need that. So we have those at state, yeah. individuals who, who are chemists or biologists who work in labs for the bioweapons mm-hmm. issues and chemists for the chemical weapons issues. So we have that, but the people in my area are mainly civil servants, and they have like international relations degrees yeah, because they do a lot of diplomacy, obviously, at state. But for me, it was I didn't find that to be too much of an issue because we had people there who had the specializations. Yeah. I had my own background already in military issues because I was in reserves mm-hmm. and I was a lawyer. So you had almost like a unicorn action officer, like a little all, bit, yeah. the, all yeah. of the, the relevant expertise to bring to that mm-hmm. that portfolio. That's incredible. Mm-hmm. So you are an undersecretary of state, mm-hmm. which is amazing. So what are your priorities now? I have several, and a lot of my priorities build from the, the landscape that I come into as undersecretary and looking at the work that's already going on and work that I would like to do. So when I sat down to think about my priorities, I said, okay, so there's a lot of change, you know, because by then Russia had invaded Ukraine. Yeah. You have the PRC building up its military capabilities. Mm-hmm. You have the JCPOA situation. You have situations with climate change and we want to promote civil nuclear issues and mm-hmm. getting countries off of relying on Russia for their energy needs. It was a lot going on. And so for me, it was like, oh my goodness, I got this portfolio and all these things yeah. are changing. Yeah. All of the assumptions that we've had yes. for like two decades right. at least right. are just changing, you know, Almost out the I mean, this yeah. whole idea of, I mean, not that China is anywhere near U.S. and Russia and nuclear, but still people starting to think, wow, we have another country that's building when everyone else is pretty much not building nearly as quickly or just kind of staying the status quo. We're trying to reduce with Russia with the START treaties and things like that. So a lot of change. So my priorities really build on a lot of that. It, it builds on, for example, strengthening arms control nonproliferation disarm, being yeah. the leader because we lost a little bit of that. So becoming a leader once again on those issues and knowing that there were a number of treaty review conferences coming up. So like the Nuclear Nonproliferation Treaty Review Conference, which is every five years, happened in August. The Biological Weapons Review Conference that happens every five years is in two weeks. The Chemical Weapons Review Conference that's every five years is next year. So okay. all these things were coming up. And so these were opportunities for us to be a leader. Another one is looking at our security assistance and increasing the role of human rights in what we and how we do our security assistance. 
Another one is, as I said, the civil nuke, using mm-hmm. nuclear power to help countries with their energy needs, to help countries get, deal with the climate change issues, and also doing research in nuclear power, nuclear energy, such as issues of food security, cancer research. So that's one of the priorities is working with the International Atomic Energy Agency and what we call what they call peaceful uses of nuclear energy for all these other things that they can do to help the needs of climate change, food security, cancer research, and a whole lot of other things. Another one is looking at this DEIA, of course, diversity, mm-hmm. equity, inclusion, and accessibility. I hired a woman on my staff who focuses just on that, women, peace, yep. and security issues. Fantastic. And then I have one of my priorities called the, the brain trust, developing hmm. the brain trust, because we need to think about all this stuff and how we're dealing with it. Yep. So there's something called the International Security Advisory Board, which was not in existence in the past administration. But we have 30 individuals who are experts who I had the opportunity of selecting with and getting approved within state. To be on this board, you can go to the website and see it. They just, we just launched it like a couple of months ago mm-hmm. with the Secretary of State, uh, Secretary Blinken. And they look at specific issues. And yes. They're looking at issues of deterrence. They're looking at issues of emerging technologies, yeah. which is another big issue that's coming up in my, one of my bureaus. But they're also looking at an issue of the issues of new types of security challenges yes. that are in the, the climate change, food security, water security area. So what does that mean for the T portfolio in terms of security, and not so much in making sure people have the food. Because that's one way of dividing security is we're secure because we have it. Yeah. Another way is what conflicts can be result from lack of food, food security. You know yeah. what kind of conflicts can arise from resource limitations. That's the side I want. So we have it's a more holistic at. understanding of the, the security yeah. environment. Exactly. So like, yeah. So those are some of them. I have like nine, which are online. If anyone wants to see them, they just go to my state website and they list all nine priorities. Mm-hmm. But that's kind of a, a sense of where. And of course, emerging technologies is another one. Space, yeah. promoting norms, international norms on how we deal with emerging technologies. There's a big conference next year that Netherlands is, is hosting mm-hmm. on this issue of AI and the military. And so one of the things we're doing in my bureaus is promoting norms yeah. and how do we deal with that, but also space, you know, yeah. in, in which, which is, there's so much to, there's so much going on in yeah. space. And we just had a, a resolution that the UN first committee, that was quite a number over a hundred sponsors against direct accents, anti-satellite missile tests, like the one yeah. that Russia did that left all that debris up there. So is, if I could pick up on a thread that you sort of teased earlier, arms control has not been arguably at the cutting edge of the work the U.S. government's been doing, right? Global war on terror, just been Mm -hmm. other priorities. And there's also arguments right now that because of Russia's behavior, arms control is dead. I personally suspect that is completely not the case, right? Because we need to have arms control as part of our broader strategies for the the Mm long-term international security order that we want to develop. So I'd love your thoughts. Where is arms control fitting into the future of national security policy. Mm-hmm. Well, three points, and I hope I don't forget all three. One is <laughs> arms control has never gone away. Right. We don't hear about it, but the NPT is the Non-Proliferation Treaty, the Biological Weapons Convention, Chemical Weapons Convention, the entire regime of export controls and sanctions and unilateral decision-making. I mean, these remain, they've, they've always been there. Yeah. We just don't talk about it. Right. But they've Which all, is actually a success yeah, in a lot of ways, right? Yeah, you don't, you don't yeah. want to have to talk about right. these things. Um, that's why you have people like us that work on it 
We have these conferences every five years. Mm-hmm. We have meetings on a regular basis. We have extended deterrence talks with countries. There's so much going on that fits into this entire scheme. So it's not that it wasn't there. It just wasn't highlighted or sure. talked about as much. And the reason why you're hearing more about it now is because like what Russia's doing. Yeah. So it's never going away. And prevention is a way to make sure we, have, we don't have to deal with those things. Yeah. And diplomacy obviously plays a huge role. So that's the first point. The second point is we continue to focus on these issues. It's even, I think... We have seen that it's even more important now because yeah. when people are seeing the Russia the nuclear saber rattling that Russia has yes. done, they've gone back and forth with, oh, we're not really going to do it. Oh, yeah. Oh. The bottom line is it created a huge new interest in mm-hmm. these issues from a lot of young people mm-hmm. who weren't really thinking about it. A lot of people were like, you said, they weren't thinking about it. Right. And now they're like, oh my goodness, this could happen. And so it's been positive in that respect, but it also highlights why we need it. Yeah. Now, granted, countries can always just they can always decide, like we have decided with the J2, we don't want to do it anymore. But that doesn't eliminate the need for it because we have to have some kind of predictability in the system. That's why we continue to have these review conferences. And one last thing I yeah. want to mention is how we look at arms control today. One of the things that I'm pushing and my colleagues are pushing within the Arms Control and Verification Compliance Bureau is we just look at all the tools. It's yeah. not just legally binding agreements. Right. It's risk reduction measures crisis management, it's notifications, it's Mm -hmm. conversations, it's strategic dialogues. These are all part of the arms control mix. You know, so arms control, reducing arms, predictability, transparency are all things that we're pursuing and we're pursuing them in different ways with different countries. Mm -hmm. If we're going to be able to effectively gauge a situation or a crisis, Mm -hmm. the arms control suite of tools allows us to be able to understand the indicators and warnings. Like, what's happening? Do we really need to be worried about Russian saber rattling Mm -hmm. here? Or Mm -hmm. Or is this just sort of bluster? Yeah. You know? And it's, that's it's incredibly important. It's incredibly important. And that's why diplomacy is so important, you know, because I was going to mention the nuclear posture review that came mm-hmm. out recently. We look at deterrence and the reason why you have deterrence and strong military is for the deterrence purposes. But you have the arms control, which is the other side of the coin. It's another part of deterrence. If you have extended deterrence dialogues with countries like ROK and Japan, so mm-hmm. they don't feel they need to develop their right. own nuclear weapons because they feel like we have a strong deterrence they can rely on our deterrence. For right. So that's good. So they don't have to do that. And it makes it easier for them. And that highlights the importance of diplomacy and deterrence. And you, you have mm-hmm. the military exercises. You have all the things on the deterrence side to let countries know that you shouldn't do this because we're prepared and we have all this. That's what this side. This side is, let's be transparent. Let's talk so we don't need to even go there. Right. You know? Right, right, yeah. right. And there's that that academic theory out there that actually everybody should proliferate. Everybody should have their own nuclear weapons. It's like just a couple of days ago with Poland and the Russian missile strike, like mm-hmm. it took a lot of work to de-escalate that situation, mm-hmm. that crisis. There are a handful of countries who we've been dealing with for many years. In 2022, nuclear weapons are expensive. They're time consuming. They're mm-hmm. resource intensive. You see how North Korea is taking so much of their infrastructure and humanitarian assistance to build their, and they have traditionally to build their weapons complex. Mm-hmm. Most countries don't want it. Most yeah. countries don't feel like it. And it creates a security, what you call security dilemma, where if you have one, then the one next to you is going to build one. So is it really worth it for me to build one? Because then we have a competition mm-hmm. going on. Yeah. And nobody is it worth that when we have so many things to deal with, like climate change and all these humanitarian issues to deal with. It's been the same countries we worry about, the same countries since I started working on this issue. It's been the same yeah. eight, eight yeah. or nine countries. 
So to turn to the big picture question, Mm -hmm. right? Prospects for arms control with respect to Russia and China. How do you Mm -hmm. how do you see that? For the PRC, we are very interested in having a dialogue with them. And whether it's crisis, you know, we're not tying it to any particular words. Yeah. We just want to have a conversation. We don't have one. There's no transparency regarding their nuclear buildup, their military buildup overall. And so because there's no dialogue, there's no transparency. There's no predictability. There's no understanding of what's their doctrine, what are they doing. And so in a situation where you're talking military buildup, nuclear buildup, you just need some kind of transparency. Mm -hmm. And every time I sit down with a country, they ask me about that, Mm -hmm. you know, Mm because everyone's concerned about how you having conversations with them. So at the point that right now we're very interested, we're just waiting to get a response from the And I I would say a lot of observers focus on numbers, but that's not the whole picture. We don't even know what the issue is. We just know they don't want to do it. Right. So sure. really, we'd love to get them to the table so we could even have that kind of a conversation. Sure. Now, on the other side, Russia, we've had a long history of having arms control, crisis management, risk reduction discussions with Russia, yeah. Soviet Union, now Russia. So there's a long history of that. And there's a history of us being able to add always at some point to decouple what's happening from the need to have these kind of conversations. Okay. Decouple what's happening, geopolitical issue du jour. Yeah. I mean, during the Cold War, we were able to still have the INF Treaty, Intermediate Mm -hmm. Nuclear Forces Treaty with the Soviet Union. And so we have that history. Right now, of course, because of what's happening, it's basically impossible to have those. The president, President Biden, has said when Russia acts in good faith. Now, having said that, you know, we had our a couple of geospatial dialogues with Russia last year, late last year, which obviously ended because they invaded Ukraine. And that's for talking about our situation right now and a treaty following the New START Treaty. But on the New START Treaty, we are going to be meeting with the Russians in a couple of weeks. Yeah. Because that treaty still has to be, it's still in existence. We still have to implement it. And so one of the things we're looking to do is restart the inspections that were okay. stopped because of COVID. And so that's a big issue that we're trying to move forward with Russia. Now, they're still doing notifications. We have mm-hmm. our nuclear risk reduction center. We're under the treaty. They have to do notifications if they're going to do certain tests or whatever. They're still doing that. And yeah. we still assess that Russia is in compliance with the new START treaty. But we need to get back to the table on Got that. It. And that's Got one it. area where there's general agreement that Russia's paid and, and doing all this stuff and they're horrible for doing all this stuff. But we have to implement this treaty. So to wrap up our conversation... Do you feel that you're being a woman impacts how you approach this role and the work that you do? Or mm-hmm. if so, why? If not, why not? I think there's two ways. I think in one way, some things are the way they are. And some of the policies are the way they are because they have to be that way. And yeah. I get that. I don't want to speak for other women who've been in my position. But I certainly believe that I think inclusively all the time. Yeah. I'm very much a diplomacy person. I want to sit and talk with people, friends, enemies. I think that's the way to find a resolution to things. Yeah. I'm very inclusive in making sure everyone's input is there. That's how I approach things. Now, some yeah. of those characteristics have been more tied to a female perspective. That's probably how I would put it, because I don't want to offend anyone who's going to say, oh, you're just like, those characteristics have, in a positive way, been identified as that women bring to the table, which is why the studies say that. You know, when we're in peace negotiations, peace tends to last longer, we yeah. bring a different perspective to the table. And right. I bring that as well, which I think fits perfectly with State Department, with my role, which is the diplomatic side. And I totally get the military side. I was in the military reserve for 22 years. Mm-hmm. I get it. I get the lingo. I understand. I totally know the importance of deterrence, the importance of the military. But I also appreciate 
what the diplomacy can do to make sure we don't have to rely on a military. Ambassador Jenkins, thank you so much for your time this morning. My pleasure. It's been a fabulous conversation. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much. Subscribe to the Smart Women Smart Power podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to great content. Be sure to follow us on Twitter at Smart Women, or you can follow me on Twitter at KJ McInnes One. Thanks for listening, and join us next time.